Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 28. The prophet's duel. This week we enter a, a somewhat unique narrative, a controversy between two men who claim to be prophets, two men, both claiming to speak for the Lord, delivering contradictory messages. It's going to remind us that there are many men and women in this world who are more than happy to put God's name on their own ideas. And it's going to remind us of why this is, namely, because they do not have a fear of God. And so putting God's name on their lies is not a trouble to them in the least. Through these lessons, we're going to be helped in our own lives as we step daily into a world where false teachers have very large platforms and very strong influence upon culture. And while at the end of the day, we don't share Jeremiah's prophetic office, we don't share Jeremiah's prophetic capacity or authority, we do have the same truths undergirding our cause and our effort as Jeremiah does on the day upon which, of which we study and of which we speak this evening. We step into Jeremiah chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, and the Bible says this, And it came to pass the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Adzer, the prophet, which was of Gibeon, spake unto me in the house of the Lord, and in the presence of the priests and all of the people, saying. Verse 1 sets the scene for us. As we have been for some time, we find ourselves this week still what Jeremiah calls uh, the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. We do have a, a little bit more context. Zedekiah began his reign in 586 B.C. He reigned for 11 years until the, the destruction of Jerusalem proper. He was their final king. And yet, as we think about the idea of Jeremiah prophesying at the beginning of Zedekiah's reign, you think the beginning of his reign the first couple months, right? Well, we have a little more context here. At this point, Jeremiah is in the four and a half year mark of Zedekiah's reign. He's still calling at the beginning of his reign, but we are four and a half years into that 11-year reign. So we need to gather that context, and it would be good that we impose that context upon the beginning of Zedekiah's reign as it relates to the last several chapters as well. That when we're thinking of the beginning of his reign, we're not just talking about the first couple of months, but here we're four and a half years in, and Jeremiah is still terming it in this way. And then we are introduced to a man, and this man's name is Hananiah. He is said to be the son of Adzer, the prophet. Now, we know nothing of either of these men. Adzer is called a prophet. Hananiah is called a prophet, likely meaning that they were a part of what we understand, going all the way back to the book of Samuel, to be the school of the prophets. The school of the prophets were, if we can call them this, professional prophets, if you will. They were not necessarily or, or by any means men called of God in the fashion of the prophets of God that we see in the Old Testament like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Habakkuk. And yet they were men who were trained to foretell the word of the Lord. We might uh, liken it today to, um, well, to our Bible colleges. We have our Bible colleges and we have our seminaries, and by no means is everybody coming out of Bible college or seminary approved unto the ministry, even those that go into the ministry. As a matter of fact, the false teachers of which we could consider that I say have large ministries and large influence, most of them probably have some background in formal religious education. And yet that by no means makes them approved. And we might look at this in the same way. Uh, the school of the prophets was not a bad thing. Uh, we see it particularly in the days of Saul, right? We see it in the days of Elijah. We see it, in the, see it in the days of Elisha. This was not a bad thing. This was not an evil thing. This was not a wicked thing. These were men that were being trained to teach others the word of God, to proclaim the word of God. And yet there were plenty of bad apples in the bunch, Right. So Adzer at least was one of these. We don't know if Hananiah himself was. The Bible does not say explicitly, but we do see that Adzer was called Adzer the prophet and that he was of Gibeon, which, of course, we could trace. And many, uh, many a man was from Gibeon. Uh, there were several other prophets from the, from, out of the Gibeonites. Saul was a Gibeonite. 
And so we could trace that. It's a little bit beyond the scope of our time this evening, however. So the Bible says that Hananiah spake directly to Jeremiah here. Notice it says, he spake unto me in the house of the Lord. So Jeremiah is in the temple complex. He is in the house of the Lord. And Hananiah speaks unto him in the presence of the priests and of all the people. So the priests are there, the people are there, and Hananiah, this man who is the son of a prophet, who is claiming himself the office of the prophet, gets up and he speaks to Jeremiah. And we read the context, content excuse me, of Hananiah's prophecy in verses 2 through 4. And the Bible says this, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. Remember, this is Hananiah saying this, not Jeremiah. Hananiah says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. This is Hananiah's prophecy, and we might reckon it to be exceedingly positive. It's a very optimistic prophecy. Notice that he speaks and he invokes what we call the prophetic imperative. He does speak in the name of the Lord. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He is proclaiming publicly that the Lord is speaking through him that this message is from the Lord. And we have spoken any number of occasions at just how important this is spiritually in the Old Testament. That in the Old Testament, to invoke the name of the Lord was to put your life on the line. I mean, if, if things worked out properly, right? If, if the people of God were doing what they should have done, if they were testing the prophets as they should have tested the prophets, then thus saith the Lord was an invocation that if what you say does not come to pass, you die. So he says, thus saith the Lord. And Hananiah's prophecy is this, that God has broken the yoke of Babylon. Now, this is going to become more obvious in a moment, but remember our context. Remember what we talked about last week in Jeremiah 27. Remember what Jeremiah was doing in Jeremiah 27. Just last chapter, Jeremiah was handing out these wooden yokes, which he had made and wore around his neck. And he was handing them to all of the ambassadors of the nations that were coming to visit King Zedekiah they were coming into Jerusalem, they were visiting, and then on their way out, like, like the man who gives the party favors at the end of the party, he gives a yoke, and he says to the ambassador, go tell your king that you are under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, that you need to submit to it, or you will be wiped off the face of the earth. So Jeremiah is handing out these yokes, he is wearing a yoke. Remember that, we'll see in a moment that this is still very much in this context, that, that Hananiah's prophecy is playing off of Jeremiah's actions here, okay? So Hananiah directly denies what Jeremiah is saying and what Jeremiah is doing. Jeremiah is going around telling everyone, get, you, you need to get used to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is in charge now because the Lord is in this. And Hananiah is saying, not only is the Lord not in this, but within two full years, all of the vessels are coming back to Jerusalem from, from Babylon. All of the captives are coming back to Jerusalem from Babylon. And even the king, Jeconiah, who was a very popular guy, so popular, in fact, that when his father died, they didn't make the next king of Josiah king. They didn't make Zedekiah king. The people didn't, did they? The people didn't make Zedekiah king. The people made Jeconiah king. They made the son of the king, uh, the king. He was a popular guy. And, and the prophet says, he's coming back too. And then he reiterates that the Lord has broken the yoke of Babylon over the nation. So now Hananiah has had his say and it's time for Jeremiah to respond. Verses five and six. Then the prophet Jeremiah said unto the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord. Even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. Let it be so. The Lord do so. The Lord perform thy words which thou hast prophesied to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house and all that is carried away captive from Babylon to this place. 
Jeremiah answers there in the presence of all the people, in the presence of the priests, and he says, let it be so. I want this too, Hananiah. Jeremiah wants the message of Hananiah to be true. And indeed, this is an oft common thread surrounding those who are false teachers, that what they have to say is is generally pretty good stuff. It's stuff that I would sure like to see happen. It's compassionate. It's optimistic. It's everything but true, right? And therein lies the rub. It sounds great. it's, It's encouraging. It's optimistic. All that good stuff. The problem is it's just not true. It is perhaps a common misunderstanding to think that the people of God glory in judgment. We do not. That people, the people of God glory in others' unrighteousness, that we glory in their consequences. It does not, or at least it should not, give us any pleasure to see people fall into the pit of their own sinful choices. When we look at somebody and we say, if you continue on this path, you are going to fall into the pit of your own sinful choices, and they do it, and we're right, if we're rightly adjusted to God, that gives us no pleasure. It gives us no pleasure just because we were right. We don't want to be right, (laughs) but we are right if we're telling them what the Word of God says. It does not, or at least it should not, give us any glee to see God's judgment upon others. But the fact is that while it doesn't feel good to tell people of their sin and the consequences, it doesn't change the fact that it's true. So Jeremiah says, let the Lord perform thy words. Let the Lord bring again the vessels of the house of God. Let the Lord bring again the captivity carried away. Jeremiah doesn't want to see them in captivity. Jeremiah doesn't like the fact that the vessels of the Lord are in Babylon. Yes, I want them back to Hananiah. And for all of the compassion and optimism found in Hananiah's words, what wasn't found in them were God's words. So Jeremiah continues, verses 7 through 9. Nevertheless, hear thou now this word that I speak in thine ears. That would be Hananiah, right? We have thee, thy, thou. That means he's speaking to one person in our King James. And in the ears of all the people, the prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence. The prophets which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. Jeremiah is speaking still directly to Hananiah in the ears of the people, and he effectively responds to Hananiah's prophecy uh, and says, Hananiah, your prophecy is very bold. And the reason why it's a very bold prophecy is that the body of evidence of years gone by, the body of prophetic evidence does not reflect your optimism. He says in verse 8 that the prophets of old, the prophets of Israel in the past, we might even connect this to the prophets that were spoken of a couple of chapters ago when there was that debate as to whether or not Jeremiah should be killed. Jeremiah says these prophets, they prophesied against countries, they prophesied against kingdoms, and their prophecies were prophecies of war and evil and pestilence. That's what the prophets prophesied. So the prophet which comes as the lone voice of peace in the midst of a prophetic precedent of war and evil and pestilence He's got a lot of work to do to prove that he's the right one and all these prophets are the wrong ones. He's got a lot of work to do to prove that all of these men of years gone by are the ones that are are, are speaking wrongly and that, that, that you is the one that's proclaiming peace is speaking properly. The idea is this. God raised up prophets and generally God raised up prophets in the times where the nation was walking contrary to him. 
Those prophets did not always carry a message of judgment. We, we know this to be true. In times of repentance and obedience, God would use the prophets to promise peace, deliverance to the king of the nation. But here's the thing. Israel, we're in, we're in the fourth year of King Zedekiah, four and a half years in, to his reign. We've seen two deportations now. 605, 597. He reigns until 586 when they go into captivity. Those two deportations were evidence of God's displeasure. Now it's been four and a half years since the deportation of Jeconiah and of Ezekiel and, and, and that second deportation and nothing has changed in the hearts of the people. There has not been a national repentance. There has not been a wholesale turning to the Lord. In fact, Zedekiah has killed one of the prophets and Jeremiah has almost been killed in the span of these last four and a half years of Zedekiah's reign. The heart of the people has not changed. So what would possibly make God change his message from judgment to restoration if the people's heart has not changed? That makes no sense. And that's what Jeremiah is saying here. Hananiah, you are pe preaching a, a message of peace in a time of judgment. You have an uphill battle. If, if, if you want to be seen as a prophet of the Lord, if you want to have your message regarded as true, then it had better come to pass. That's when your message will be regarded as true because there's no other reason to believe that it's true. Hananiah hears these words and then he responds again, beginning in verse 10. Verses 10 and 11. Then Hananiah, the prophet, took the yoke from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and break it. And Hananiah spake in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. So remember last week, Jeremiah, right? In Jeremiah 27, he's handing out these yokes and he's wearing one. So Hananiah comes up to Jeremiah, who's wearing this yoke, takes the yoke from off of his neck and breaks it. In the common way that a prophet would often use physical elements to as signs, right? We've seen this already. We, we saw this in Ezekiel. Ezekiel had to do any number of quite crazy signs within his day. Jeremiah, remember when he took the linen girdle and he didn't wash it for a really long time and then he went and he buried it in the Euphrates and they went and got it again. And so he's done some physical signs. They're, they have taken physical objects and used those objects as object lessons in order to reflect something to Israel. So the school of the prophets taught this. We see false prophets using this in the nations of Israel in the days of Ahab. We see false prophets using it. We see true prophets using signs. And so here he has this physical sign. He takes this yoke off and quite literally breaks that yoke that Jeremiah is wearing, that God told Jeremiah to put around his neck. And he says, and he, he actually ups the ante of his prophecy. Before it was the nation's coming back, the vessels are coming back, the people are coming back, the king is coming back, and now he says, thus saith the Lord, he invokes the, the divine imperative again, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. He says, not only Israel, but all nations will be freed from Babylon within two years. And at this proclamation, the Bible says Jeremiah turned around and left. No doubt this pleased Hananiah greatly. Feeling as though he had stood his ground, won the prophet's duel, convinced and so encouraged many people of Israel to have hope, to be optimistic. Here's this downer, Jeremiah, who keeps telling them of judgment. And Hananiah has stepped in and nobly defended the feelings of the people nobly defended them from this pessimist and given them hope and optimism, made them encouraged and uplifted. No doubt he felt pretty good about himself. But as Jeremiah is walking away, and why would Jeremiah walk away? Because Jeremiah was giving the word of the Lord. 
When the Lord stops talking, Jeremiah is going to stop talking. So Jeremiah walks away. But then the Lord talks. The Lord says, Jeremiah, there's something else to say. Verses 12 through 14. Then the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet after that Hananiah had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I have given him the beasts of the field also. So God tells Jeremiah to go back and to talk to Hananiah again. And the first part of the message relates to the nation. God says, you've broken these yokes of wood, but I've not put a yoke of wood around the necks of the nations. I've put a yoke of iron around the necks of the nations. There is, is no breaking it. It's happening. Hananiah's evil and false prophecy has not just opposed the word of the Lord, but God says here, thou shalt make for them a yoke of iron. Hananiah, you're making it worse. You're leading them astray. Whereas Jeremiah's prophecy, and we'll see this over the next couple weeks, is now to the nation, submit and live, right? That's what he said last week. Submit to the yoke and live. Every prophet that turns around and says, don't submit to the yoke, is actually making it worse for them. God says, you're taking this yoke and you're making it a yoke of iron. God then reiterates that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon have been given not only all of the nations, but even the beasts of the field in the, in, in the region. And that to resist this power is to resist God himself. But the message is not over to Hananiah. That was a message to Hananiah about his effect on the nation, but it gets worse for Hananiah. Beginning in verse 15 through 17. Then saith the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but thou makest this people to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth. This year thou shalt die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah died the same year in the seventh month. We're in the fifth month right now, right? Four years and five, fifth month. Now it's, uh, he, he'll, he'll die just a couple months later. So Jeremiah tells Hananiah, the word of the Lord is that God has not sent you. The word of the Lord is that you are compelling God's people to trust in a lie. The word of the Lord is that you have taught them to rebel. God says, submit to Nebuchadnezzar, submit to Babylon. You are teaching them to rebel against the Lord and now you're going to die. And he dies. Now I have two very direct, distinct directions I would like to go with this message. To that end, I'm actually going to preach another message after I'm going to preach Jeremiah 28 this week. We'll, we'll talk about one of these topics. Next week I'll preach Jeremiah 29. And then after that, there will be a combined message and that combined message is going to talk about the nature of rebellion. So we're going to talk about rebellion then. But this week, I want to talk to you about false teachers. And I hope that you can see as we walk through these elements of false teachers, what, what I hope will well up in your heart is a, a gravity of consideration, a gravity of thought as it relates to false teachers. Just how big of a deal they are. Why is it that we as a church need to be so careful? Why is it that you need to be so careful in this age of YouTube and this age of uh, um, television and, and in this age of digital media where you can go online, type in, you know, what, what, what are the, the beasts of Daniel? Or type in, 
Who, what is Mystery Babylon? And you can get any Joe Schmo sitting in his basement reading books and drawing maps and pinning newspaper articles up on the wall and connecting them with twine who can now have a voice that is on equal standing with other voices and give his ideas and draw people in. You can have multi-million dollar ministries who happen to have the capacity to reach out far and wide through radio and internet and television and tell all manner of optimistic, encouraging, uplifting things and draw people's hearts ever farther away from the Lord. And because it's so easy to get this stuff, to hear these things, we need to have a gravity in our heart as it relates to the danger of false teachers. We need to be careful. We need to be discerning. And that's what we're going to talk about in our application this evening. I hope that the gravity of God's judgment upon Hananiah, and we'll see a couple more next week, that God is going to deal with very harshly false teachers. Three more, in fact. And throughout the course of these two weeks, dealing with these false teachers, may God well up within us a a understanding of just how dangerous they are and just how careful we need to be that we don't fall prey to their deceits. So let's talk about the characteristics of false teachers, the marks that the Bible gives that help us understand whether or not a teacher is true or a teacher is false. So we'll begin with that. I have three points and then the characteristics of teacher, uh, false teachers. I'm going to have several subpoints to this, four subpoints to this. And let's begin with this. Hananiah was a false teacher, a false prophet. Let's walk through their general characteristics. Characteristic number one, their message conforms to the world rather than conforming to sound doctrine. Their message conforms to the world rather than conforming to sound doctrine. You will often find false teachers correcting established doctrine or biblical truth with the philosophy of the world. They will insist that times change, cultures change, and that our understanding of God needs to change with it. They will have a new truth that no one else has ever thought of before and will insist that they have found the key that everyone else has missed as it relates to doctrine, that the church for the last 2,000 years of existence has walked blindly along, not seeing the thing that they have discovered, not understanding things the way they understand them. Now, it's one thing for ministries and operations and traditions to change with cultures and times. These are things that we would understand to happen. These things exist for man. Uh, Religion exists to facilitate our relationship with God. Based upon our culture, uh, our religious exercises might change a little bit. That's to be expected. Traditions exist to root us in careful observance. Within various cultures, within various times, our traditions will change. There was a time where pianos were not supposed to be in churches. Now, um, we, we use a piano quite thankfully in the church, and now we're fighting, as I've said before, to keep pianos in churches. And things change over time. But doctrine doesn't change. Doctrine doesn't change. Truth doesn't change. And there, of course, have been disagreements throughout the last 2,000 years about truth and about doctrine. And there's always been differences and there's always been disagreements so that we can't say, well, there has been one body of truth that everybody has held to bar none without any controversy. And we know that as well. But when you hear a teacher who has changed what, what Christians believe what Christians throughout the ages ages have understood the word of God to mean regarding sound doctrine, particularly changing them with the fruit of, of conforming doctrine to culture, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Jude describes these false teachers this way. 
in Jude chapter 1, verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude describes men who had taken an established doctrine. And the established doctrine that we find here is the doctrine of grace. And these men had taken this doctrine of grace and had turned it into lasciviousness, had turned it into sexual sin, had turned it into an excuse to sin. (laughs) perhaps in an effort to win more people to the doctrine of grace, perhaps in an effort to excuse people from uh, the, the implications of their guilt or their sin, the teachers will twist grace to mean that sin is okay, that all is forgiven and therefore all is allowable. And so we find here that they would say grace has given us the license to sin, that that's what grace is for. Now, we know this is not true. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So we know this is not true. And so if we find someone who is turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, who is looking at you in your attempts to follow the word of God and saying, wow, you're a legalist. You know what you have here. You have a man who has crept in unawares. They use the right words. They express confidence. They express knowledge. But they use these words to twist the truths of Scripture so that people think that they can serve God and mammon simultaneously. But what does James chapter 4 verse 4 tell us? Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So the first question we ask ourselves in relation to preaching is whether the message conforms to the word of God, to the principles of God, or to the world and the principles of the world. And take note that these are called men who have crept in unawares. Uh, They aren't going, at least at first, they are not going to come into the church with blatant heresies waving their worldly flag loud and proud. That's not how false teachers find their way into the church. They come in softly. They come in carefully. They come in looking like us. They come in sounding like us. They come in using our language and then abusing our language in order to twist the word of God. And so when we hear somebody preaching and teaching and they're using our language, but they're not coming to our conclusions, it's time to take a closer look. And we use a blatant example like the one I've just given turning the doctrine of grace into a message allowing sin, as Jude used, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. But, you know, it's not always that way. What about the pastor who uses the pulpit to preach a message of anger, intolerance, violence, hate? What about the preacher who gets up and calls on God's people to fight back? What about the preacher who is saying things that the world would not agree with? That the world, that that does not make the world like them. Like the preacher that gets up and preaches a message of hate or violence or of anger. And yet, though the world does not like the message, it's still a worldly message, is it not? Hate, violence, anger, these are not the things of God. These are not the things of sound doctrine. Even if the world looks at that message and says, wow, we don't like these people. And so they say, we must be of God because the world hates us. Well, wait a minute. Maybe the world hates you because you're an angry, violent, hatred, hate, hateful person. That does not make it of God just because the world around you doesn't like it. If it's not of sound doctrine, then it's not of God. So the pastor who preaches hate, 
and anger and violence against the sinner or some authority. His message is just as false, just as rooted in the principles of the world as any false teacher. Any message that bears the fruit of anger, of hatred, of violence, of allowance for sin, of apathy to God's commands, any message that bears the marks of the principles of this world is not a message of sound doctrine. We need to look out for that. That if the message conforms to the principles of the world, I'm not saying the world will like the message. If it conforms to the principles of the world rather than to the character of God, rather than to sound doctrine, then it is not of God. I mentioned it on Friday night in our men's preaching class. Did you know that a recent poll came out? It was a Barna research study, so a very reputable research firm, that found that among millennial Christians, say 20 to 35, around, uh, among millennial Christians, a full one half of them believe it is wrong to evangelize the lost. Millennial, those that claim to be Christians of the millennial generation, a full one half of them believe it is wrong to share the gospel. This is just as much false doctrine conforming to the world, conforming to the principles of the world, conforming to the principles and the ideology of tolerance, conforming to the principles and ideology of political correctness as anything else. This is a false message. It bears the marks of the message of the world, not of the message of Christ. It's not sound doctrine. The characteristics of false teachers. First, their message conforms to the world rather than to sound doctrine. Second, their message affirms emotions rather than affirming truth. Many false teachers, in accordance with a worldly message and a worldly goal, will seek a message that will affirm people's feelings rather than affirming truth. Truth is not fun to hear. Truth does not make people happy. It is not fun to look into the perfect law of liberty and to see myself in the light of God's precepts. I fall so desperately short of anything good, of anything right, of anything righteous within myself And no one wants to be confronted with their own filthiness. No one wants that. Which is exactly what Isaiah 64, 6 calls, it's why Isaiah 64, 6, excuse me, calls my own righteousness filthy rags, right? And because the exclusivity of the cross is offensive, and because the burden of the cross is offensive, and because my sin is offensive, and because holy living is offensive, False teachers don't go there. They may not outright reject it. If you looked at them in the eye and said, is something right? They'll say, yeah, it's right. But they're not going to teach it. They're not going to preach it. They're not going to draw it out. They're not going to emphasize it. They focus rather upon people's feelings. They focus upon the results of biblical Christianity without any of the essential elements that bring about those results. They teach people that they need to be joyful without teaching them that the source of joy is rooted in faith and obedience. Trust and obey, right? They teach people that they, that they, they need to find peace, but without the source of peace rooted in faith and obedience. Trust and obey. And when it doesn't work, when they're preaching, you got to be joyful and you got to be peaceful and people aren't finding it because it can't work because they can't find what they seek without finding the means by which to seek it. Trust and obey. They can't bear the fruit of the Spirit apart from the power of the Spirit found in walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ. When they, when, when they can't produce it, and their people aren't producing it, the message then must be altered all the more, right? Teaching people to conjure up counterfeit emotions based upon carnal efforts, based upon carnal perceptions and results. People aren't finding peace in churches. So what does the pastor do? The pastor doesn't know what he doesn't know. 
Yes, many false teachers know exactly what they're doing. But a lot of them, to a degree, they don't know what they don't know. They say, why, why can't I find peace? Because they don't have the Prince of Peace with them. They think that Hananiah may very well, speculating here, he may very well have had some measure of confidence that the Lord was speaking to him because he didn't know what it was like to have the Lord speaking. So he says, well, this inkling in my heart, that must be the Lord. And there's plenty of people today that are living that way. They don't know what it is to feel the peace of God. They don't know what it is to be led by the Spirit. And so they say, well, when I have this feeling in my gut, that must be the Spirit. When I have this surge of emotion after a Christian rock concert, that must be the Spirit. Because they've, they, they've, they've never experienced anything different. If you've never experienced the real thing, then the fake seems just fine to you. Bible college, they go through a lot of food. Every morning I would eat the same thing. I'm a, I'm a man of routine. Two bowls of raisin bran, three cups of milk, one cup of juice, two hard-boiled eggs, and a banana. That was my breakfast every morning. And probably not from year one, but at least year two. Three years, four years. I was there for five. That was my breakfast every morning. Throughout that time, I eat a banana every morning. And one of the things about when you're trying to give bananas to 5,000 students, you eat a lot of green bananas. Green bananas are crunchy. Green bananas are a little bitter. At the end of that five years, I had forgotten what a real banana tasted like. A ripe banana is what I mean by that. To where I ate a ripe banana and I said, wow, this is really sweet. This is really soft. There's something wrong here. What's, what's going on with this banana? This is, this is not a banana because bananas to me were green and crunchy and bitter. When the unbeliever has never experienced peace, when the unbeliever has never experienced joy, when the unbeliever has spent their entire life thinking peace and joy were green, crunchy bananas, then when a false teacher comes preaching green, green crunchy bananas, they're not going to know any different because they've never tasted a banana. My daughters are amused. So they conjure things up. But here's the problem. What happens when you're preaching joy and you're preaching peace and it can't be found? Well, you know what they do? They start looking around and say, who has peace? Oh, Near Eastern mystics, yoga. Yoga's brought them peace. Let's bring yoga in. Oh, meditation. Meditation has brought them peace. Let's bring that in. Oh, going on faith journeys, walking the labyrinth, looking for uh, um, mystical experiences. That has brought people peace. Let's bring that in. They're grasping for the ways that they can convince their people that, to conjure up carnal peace because they have no solution to actually present to them peace. And so the false teacher starts out preaching a message that sounds right and having no means by which to help their people find it. And then when they can't find it, they spiral deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of false teaching in order to find something that can validate their teaching apart from the power of God that is the only way for their teaching to find some sort of reality. Because their message is seeking to affirm emotions rather than truth. Their message is trying to bring about the results of Christianity without the power of Christianity found in the Word of God. They've got nothing but crunchy bananas. Point number three. Their message is one-sided, imbalanced, or focused upon one aspect of truth to the exclusion of others. I put truth there in quotes. The characteristic of false teachers that we find here is oftentimes the most difficult one to spot. This is where a man is generally correct about a certain area of doctrine, but he teaches it to the exclusion of another. This is the man that is generally correct about how much God loves you, but he will never, ever, ever tell you that God is also holy and that in God's love, he has called us 
to follow him in truth. Their message sounds very good because it affirms certain aspects of doctrine. They speak of grace, but they speak of grace at the expense of holiness. They speak of liberty, but they never tell God's people about the responsibilities of liberty that God has placed upon us. But see, here's the thing. If I were to turn on the television and listen to a man and he were to preach a semi-imbalanced message about the love of God, where he doesn't talk about the holiness of God, I would turn off the television and say, that was a good message on the love of God. And I would say, that guy sounds pretty good. And it would take a while before I realized, wait a minute, this guy never talks about holiness. This guy never talks about truth. This guy never talks about judgment. This guy is imbalanced. This is, the, this is perhaps the hardest one to spot because it takes, it takes a, a, a bit of time to find out what he's omitting. Like standing only on one leg and then convincing everyone that this is the only leg that they have. The man is teaching only half of the truth and then expecting everyone to run a marathon. And when this perversion of truth fails to stand on its own because it's only one leg, it's missing the essentials, he must then find other claims to prop up those truths and that leads back to emotions and that leads back to worldly methods and solutions rather than the truths of Christ. And again, a man who was perhaps well-intentioned at one point goes down the spiral of false doctrine, false teaching. One final characteristic, their life and lifestyle conforms to carnality rather than to sound doctrine. Second Peter 2 describes false teachers this way. I'm going to read you a smattering of verses. Verse 10, verse 14, verse 17 and 18. The Bible says this, But chiefly them that walk, <coughs> excuse me, walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Verse 17, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. The false teacher does not know the power of the Spirit. So however it is that they live their lives, whatever label they give to their efforts, whether they call it Christianity, whether they uh, call it being Spirit-led, whether uh, they, they call it... Um, um, operating under the dictates of their conscience, whatever they call it, it will inevitably bear the marks of carnality. That teacher, I remember talking with uh, our friends one time, friends that went to a different church in this area, and they would come to me and ask me questions, and uh, they knew, you know, knew I was a pastor, and they'd ask me questions about doctrine, and, They'd compare and contrast. They'd say, oh, my pastor said this, and what do you think of that? And I remember one time they came up and said, uh, our pastor is a really angry man. He has, a, he has such a bad temper, and he's always uh, getting angry at people, and, and, and he's, he's uh, verbally accosting them. He's verbally tearing them down. And his wife, I don't even know if his wife is a believer. She's such a terrible woman. She gossips, and she backbites, and she's bitter, and she's angry. But he's such a good teacher, they said. I asked, why, why are you still at that church? Because he's such a good teacher. If a man bears the marks of carnality rather than of sound doctrine, we're looking at someone who no matter how good his stuff sounds, is not going to bear the fruit of righteousness. They seek to the world to solve their problems because they have no concept of how to solve them through the Spirit. 
They use their platform to justify their worldly choices and the consequences of their worldly choices because they don't know anything else because they're goats, they're not sheep. Because they're a part of the world. Because they don't know what it is to taste of the Spirit. Hananiah was counted a prophet among his people. He sounded like a prophet. He acted like a prophet, but his words were false. As we have said, the message sounded good. It looked good. It bore every mark except the only mark that mattered, and that was the mark of truth. And this is the mark by which we must judge. False teachers are extremely good at their lies. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves in sheep's clothing. That's a warning about those who look like sheep but aren't. Right? It's not like we would think of it from the cartoons. Not like we would think of it, not, not like a Wild E. Coyote Roadrunner episode where you see the coyote and he's got the sheep head on. He's crawling along and you see that it's a coyote with a sheep head on. No. They are wolves and sheep. They look like sheep. They sound like sheep. But they're not sheep. They have crept in unawares. They don't come in on Sunday and say, hey, pastor, I'm here to split your church. Hey, pastor, I'm here to tear, you, to tear down the doctrine of this church. Pastor doesn't candidate and say, well, my, my real goal here is to draw everyone into sin and carnality. False teacher's not going to say that. But it's, it's all they can do. It's all they know. It's who they are. Characteristics of false teachers. Now, before we move on, there's one more thing I would like us to consider about false teachers as a characteristic. It's not necessarily a point, but as reflected in the, te- in the, in the Scriptures' teachings. We've read already 2 Peter verses 17 and 18. I want to read them again, but continue past those verses. Verses 17 through 22. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, right? So a well without water. It looks like it has something for you, but it doesn't, right? It's empty. A cloud that's carried about by a tempest. Uh, Other places, they're called clouds without rain. The idea that they look like they have value, but they don't actually produce anything, right? To whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them. Then the beginning, for it hath been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow, sow, excuse me, that was washed to wallowing in the mire. Now we studied this chapter not too long ago on Tuesday night. And I said so instead of Sal then too, if you recall. We were saying that we studied this chapter not too long ago on, on a Tuesday night. And those of you who are there will be very comfortable with what this passage is saying. What we found in the context is that Peter is speaking of false teachers and reflecting not only about how they cause others to go astray, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but about the nature of their efforts as false teachers. And what Peter says about these particular false teachers is that they have been enlightened by the Spirit of God to know the truth, but they never received it. They have never been born again. And we studied this out and I defended this. I will not defend all of it again this evening. Now, I mentioned to you already that when I talk about Hananiah and and, and to a degree false teachers, they don't know what they don't know. They've never experienced the fullness of the Spirit of God and the power of the Spirit of God in that experiential way. And so to a degree, they are only working with what they know. And that is true. But when you get to the top, when you deal with the people that have the power and the, the great power and influence, what the Bible tells us is that they are people, that the, these teachers that Peter is warning against are those who do have an understanding of the power of God, but have knowingly and willfully rejected it. That they know exactly what they're doing. 
that they know the reality of God and his power, and they have traded the power and the promises of God in order to appeal to the religious sensibilities of the masses in order to make money. They see the truths of God's word. They see that there's no money or success in the truths of God's word. They see that that, that requires them to be submitted to the word of God. They're not going to submit. And so instead, they change the truth of God into a lie in order to monetize it or profit in some materialistic or temporal way. Now, naturally, these men and women reject the truth, and that's the problem in itself, but it isn't the primary problem of the false teacher. The primary problem of the false teacher is what their worldly ambition means as it relates to abusing the religious zeal of others who are following that false teacher. Characteristics of false teachers was the first point. Second, we need to understand that false teachers bring down the wrath of God upon those who listen to them. And this is the real tragedy. This is the real tragedy. If a false teacher wants to believe crazy things, wants to trade the riches of life eternal for the goodness, for the riches of this world, that's his business. But the problem with false teachers is that they take others to hell with them. False teachers do what they do, understanding the power of the spirit world to touch the lives of others. They know that people are seeking for spiritual meaning. They know that people are seeking for spiritual purpose. And they're tapping into that spiritual need in order to monetize them. They know that people will always uh, seek for spiritual fulfillment. They must because it's etched into the very hearts of God's creation And they use this as the very foundation of their deception. They appeal to the religious sensibilities of people, many of whom are genuine and seeking to connect to the spiritual. And they lead them into error for the sake of their own material or emotional ends. And as we have said, if they want to know to knowingly choose the path of destruction, that's their business. But they don't just destroy themselves. In their effort to achieve their own success, they damn others. They bring the wrath of God down upon those who follow in their error. Well, why would God do that? How could God do that? They've been deceived. Yes, but here's the thing. Sin is sin. And if you oppose God, you will be judged. Whether I am led into sin or whether I go into the path of sin with eyes wide open, God must judge sin. In Jesus' woes against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he said this in Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass the sea and land to make one proselyte, a follower, a disciple. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. This is what I'm talking about. Men who claim loyalty to God, but whose loyalty is actually to themselves, to their system, and to the power that it gives them. And in their passion, they go and they find followers. And they find them. Of of course they find them. And through their teachings, and through their charisma, and through their fair speeches, they cause them to yield to these deceptions. And they make these followers, they make these disciples twofold more a child of hell than when they were ignorant of these things. Twofold more a child of hell than the person who led them into this error. Paul spoke of them this way in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. He said, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have heard, learned, and avoid them. For they are such, uh, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, their own desires, their own emotions, their own feelings, their own urges. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. They serve themselves and they deceive the hearts of the simple. And this is a tragedy. In their efforts to gain notoriety or a following or even their efforts in their own deceptive zeal, they destroy the souls of the hearers. 
God said to Hananiah on that day through the words of Jeremiah that Hananiah had made the people to trust in a lie. See, Hananiah's optimism about the nation of Israel and their future. If he wanted to be optimistic about the nation of Israel and their future in light of of God's words through Jeremiah, go ahead, Hananiah. Go ahead and sit in your house and be excited. But when you get up and you say, thus saith the Lord, and you contradict the message of the prophet, it's no longer just you you're affecting with your, with your, your incorrect ideas, with your false optimism. Now you are dragging the hearers down into the pit of your own deception. Now you are taking the yoke that is upon them and you are making it a yoke of iron. You are stealing their hearts against the Lord. You are teaching them rebellion. The people heard the words of Jeremiah and whatever pangs of conscience they may have felt as they heard the word of the Lord, as they wrestled with whether or not they should believe Jeremiah, should we really submit? And maybe there were some priests and maybe there were some people and maybe there were some leaders that said, you know what? I think Jeremiah's right. There's been two deportations already. Nebuchadnezzar's not getting any weaker. The things we're doing aren't working. Uh, Jeremiah had, had promised the, the, the captivity and then it happened and we're seeing it. We should probably believe this guy. All of those things that we talked about in that message that said there are a few good guys left, right? There were a few people left that said, look, we ought to probably listen to this guy. And there are those people and then Hananiah gets up and he says, Thus saith the Lord, and they say, oh, well, here's a chance for me to follow the Lord and simultaneously not believe in doom. I like that. That makes me feel better. That makes me pillow my head at night without having to wonder or without having to to, to fret. I like that. I'll follow that guy. And they follow his lie into a yoke of iron. And so it is today that as the word of God goes forth from the mouths of faithful believers and churches across this nation and across this world, not only do we contend against the devil and his allures and his deceits, not only do we contend against the world and the flesh, we contend against these men and these women, strong voices who claim Christ with all of their charisma and all of their charm and all of their flattering words, but encourage God's people to cast off the pangs of spiritual conviction that rest in their hearts through the Holy Spirit of God and to follow their deceptions into a life of temporal ease and eternal judgment. And these men and women, these false teachers, are making men and women twofold more a child of hell than they would have been otherwise. And as I said before, this is a tragedy. Guard yourselves, believers. Guard yourselves. Validate the teaching of men by the word of God. And if it's the teaching of women... Won't take too long to validate that one against the word, invalidate that one against the word of God. Don't have to go too far. Third and final point. False teachers bring down the wrath of God upon themselves. Hananiah died that year under the condemnation of God for his sin of teaching the nation to rebel against him. 2 Peter 2 says that these false teachers, Jude says the same thing, that these false teachers are fitted for nothing but destruction. That they are fitted to be destroyed. That's what they're good for. And of course, we have that warning from James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, that word being teacher, instructor, knowing that we, the teachers and instructors, shall receive the greater condemnation, the greater judgment. When a person sets out to claim to speak for God, to take upon himself the responsibility of speaking in the name of the Lord, he takes upon himself a grave accountability as well. 
Jeremiah 28 reminds us of this very lesson that the false prophet had not only traded the pleasures of this world for the pleasures of this life, but he had heaped upon himself the judgment of God. And our takeaway from all these principles is this. Stick to the book. Trust the word of God. Whether it be those who strive to deceive, whether it be well-meaning Christians who have gone beyond their depth in their zeal without knowledge into areas of which they, they have no business trotting. If we seek the truth above all, if we never stray far from the book, if we stick to what the Bible says above what we might want it to say, if we follow truth rather than follow emotion, if we keep our anchor firm, firmly rooted in thus saith the Lord, it will be well with us. And then we can trust God with the rest. May God help us this evening. May God help us as a church. May God protect us from the deceits of those who might creep in unawares. May God help us as families and as individuals that we would have the discernment, understanding the characteristics of false teachers, to look for those marks and to stay far away from those who bear the marks of the Second Peter 2, of the Jude characteristics of false teachers, lest they cause us to believe in a lie, lest they teach us rebellion against the Lord, lest they drag us into the, the pit of their own judgment. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.